be wooed with all of one's might and every bit of effort that we have. And each day there's a new encounter, each week there's a new challenge. And all of the display and all of the noise and all of the glamour and all of the color and all of the excitement and all of the rings and all of the money, these are the things that really linger only in the memory. But the spirit, the will to excel, the will to win, these are the things that endure. And you're listening to the late Vince Lombardi, and we celebrate great American iconic figures, and there was no bigger one in the mid to late 20th century than Vince Lombardi. He affected everything, and we love talking to great writers, and we're going to talk right now with David Moranis, who wrote the book on Vince Lombardi, When Pride Still Mattered. Go to Amazon, pick it up. You will not put it down. It tells the story, not just about a man, but a place and a time. David's the associate editor of the Washington Post. His latest book is Once in a Great City, a Detroit story about 1963, a time and a place and a great American city. And David, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Let's start in the beginning. Vince Lombardi's dad. What did he, <laughs> what did he do for a living? And describe the world oh, man. that young Vince, Vince grew up in. Lombardi's father, Harry, was a butcher. The family lived uh, in Sheepshead Bay uh, in Brooklyn. Harry would commute over to the lower west side of Manhattan where he had a butcher shop. One of his nicknames was Old 5x5, five five, which described about how he looked. He was short and squat and very strong and sort of uh, inculcated into his sons that there was no such thing as pain. Uh, he was tattooed, uh, you know, before his time. I guess, you know, he'd fit in with the modern-day athlete in that sense. Uh, but my favorite tattoos were on his knuckles. On one uh, hand, his knuckles spelled W-O-R-K, work. And on the other hand, the knuckles spelled play, P-L-A-Y. And that, too, sort of reflected some part of his son's mythology. Indeed. And, and, and here's a quote from you. The trinity of Vince Lombardi's early life was religion, family, and sports. It would be true for his entire life, wouldn't it be, David? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, in various orders, but he was, he was a very religious man, Catholic family, Italian Catholics. At one point, Vince himself thought he was going to be a priest, and he always sort of carried that inside him for the rest of his life. And he was trained at, at Fordham by the Jesuits, and the Jesuit philosophy was a very important part of his coaching philosophy. Um, but family was, was really everything. His mother's family were the Izzos, and she was one of 13 Izzo kids. And that, with you know, all kinds of uh, cousins and uncles and aunts, and, and that family really is the environment that Vince Lombardi grew up in something that he never was able to recreate with his own nuclear family, as we'll talk about, but but was able to recreate with his team, the Green Bay Packers. And by the way, 13 kids, people are listening like shocked, right, David? But Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, yeah. and just lots of families, 8, 10, 12, was, well, it was pretty normal, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, it was not out of the ordinary for an Irish Catholic or, or Italian Catholic family of that era. Uh, the Izzos were pretty well renowned in Sheepshead Bay because there were there were so many of them, and they they had uh, various uh, professions um, in that 
place. But no, it was not it was not shocking that there would be thirteen of them. Now you wrote, quote, the church was not some distant institution to be visited once a week, but part of the rhythm of daily life. Talk about that. Vince Lombardi as an adult went to Mass every morning. When he lived uh you know, wherever he lived. At at Fordham as a student, uh he was trained by the Jesuits. Um then he was a, a teacher and coach at Saint Cecilia High School in New Jersey. Um, where he his best friends were the were the fathers there and the nuns. Um, when he was at Green Bay, uh, he went to mass every morning at St. Willibrod's in Green Bay, which was a pretty heavily Catholic place. And and finally, uh, I love this story. Late, you know, late, his last move in his career was to Washington D.C. He of course wanted to go to mass every morning, but the mass that he wanted to attend was held at something like nine nine thirty or ten and he wanted to get to work before then. So he literally knocked on the door of the priest and told him to move his mass up so that somebody could get to work. <laughs> that one didn't work. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't tell God what to do, but he could tell everybody else. That's right. In the end, there was a part of me that as I read your book, he, he almost wanted to submit to something higher than him. That was about the only place in his life where that was true. Yes. But I, I think that uh People have various levels of commitment to faith and religion, and I think with Vince Lombardi, it was authentic and deep, and he did need that. Uh, he also, it should be said that he went to Mass every day because he knew he was a flawed human being, yep. and he knew that he sometimes had anger management problems, um, not that he was violent, but just that he, he except you know, with his words, um, and he wanted to try to control that, and he regretted it. And that's one of the reasons he, he went to Mass, to sort of for penance in that sense. Now let me hit you with another quote. Uh, this is a Lombardi quote in your book. From the first contact on football fascinated me. Contact, controlled violence, a game where the mission was to hit someone harder, punish him, knees up, elbows out, challenge your body, mind, and spirit, exhaust yourself, and seek redemption through fatigue. Such were the rewards an altar boy found in his favorite game. David, suffering, pain, redemption. It sounds like football and religion it, had intertwined. It, yeah, they certainly were with Vince Lombardi. Uh, there's one great uh, irony or paradox to that, which is that Lombardi was kind of a wimp. <laughs> he had a very low pain threshold himself. He had a much higher pain threshold for, for other others. people. <laughs> but, but um, you know, his, even the trainers would talk about how Lombardi would get sidelined with a hangnail. And at Fordham, he was often disabled with one injury or another. He, I mean, he was a tough human being. He had a strong spirit. But as I'm right, and I believe this is true with many coaches and politicians and leaders in general, they see their own weaknesses and understand them and try to eliminate them in others, which they can't eliminate in themselves. So that the whole notion of fatigue, though, and giving your hardest and leaving it all on the field is something that Lombardi did personally and that he truly believed in, the reward of that hard work, which is part of the Jesuit philosophy. And when we come back, more about the impact of that Jesuit philosophy on the life of Vince Lombardi. This is Our American Stories.
Habib with Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with David Moranis, author of When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And we love to do deep dives on great books of the last 25 years. This is one of the best and about one of the great subjects. And David, people would never believe it, but once upon a time, New York City was a real college football power. We had Columbia and NYU, and then there was Fordham, where young Vince decided to go play football. Talk about the role of those Fordham Jesuits in the formation of Vince's character and life. Well, I think that you can trace everything about Lombardi's coaching philosophy back to the Jesuits. The key one in my mind is the notion of freedom through discipline, which I think explains Lombardi better than anything else and is a Jesuit notion, which is that only through the hard work and repetition and commitment that comprises discipline can you eventually develop the freedom um, in your life. Um, you know, for the Jesuits, it was free will. For Lombardi, um, if you transferred it to his football teams, it was that once they learned, they disciplined themselves through that hard work to understand what they were doing, it slowed the game down for them and made them um, have a leg up on all of their opponents. And that was the freedom that his hard work gave to his players. It's so true. I'm going to read again from the book. All the detailed preparations resulted not in a mass of confusing statistics and plans, but in the opposite, paring away the extraneous, reducing and refining until all that was left was what was needed for that game against the team. Exactly your point there, David. Yeah, and I think that um, along with the Jesuits, the other um, major philosophy that affected Lombardi was from West Point, where he was an assistant coach under the great coach Red Blake who really had that same philosophy of making things simple by being a good teacher. It doesn't mean that that things are are dumbed down for for, uh, the players, but just that there's so much extraneous stuff that teachers put into something, and the ability to to make it understandable to every player um, and to simplify something until it has a more powerful effect is something he also learned from Red Blake. Indeed. In fact, you wrote, quote, in many ways, the philosophy at West Point was similar to the way of life that Lombardi had learned earlier at Fordham under the Jesuits. Absolutely. I, you know, it was a perfect uh, storm. You know, our, our leaders born or made, um, I think there's a combination of the two, but I think that, that the making of Vince Lombardi with the ingredients he already had uh, came from the Jesuits and, and West Point in a way that that made him unique. Now, his first job out of Fordham, his first coaching job, was in a little hamlet in northern New Jersey called Englewood. I grew up not far from there. Uh And St. Cecilia's High School, I'm going to quote again from the book, when he took the job at Saints, Lombardi said later, his frame of mind was that he wanted to be a teacher more than a coach. And for some people who really knew him, and you did as you studied him, that was true all the way through, wasn't it? Oh, totally. Yes, He he was a teacher coach. Everything that helped him with the Green Bay Packers was refined first at Little St. Cecilia. He, he taught a lot of different classes, including chemistry. And again, he, he what he tried to do was make it, he wouldn't go on in the coursework until every kid in the class understood it. Um, and he had a, that ability to make complicated things 
seem understandable, comprehensible. So that, you know, later when he first got to the Green Bay Packers, I, Bart Starr, the quarterback, spent one hour with Vince Lombardi and rushed to a telephone to call his wife to say that he'd never experienced anything like this and they were going to start winning because of the way that Lombardi who was a lineman, by the way, could explain what it was like to be a quarterback. You know, this is extraordinary. We're going to play the clip from Bart Starr in one second. But what's interesting, in Lomb- when Lombardi, and we're just jumping ahead of the story, we'll return back to St. Cecilia's, sure. when, when Lombardi gets to, to Green Bay, the team had been 1-10 in 10 the year before. 1-10. <laughs> in 10. So he's now meeting the players. He gives this pep talk. And within an hour, as you said, here's Bart Starr talking about that. I'll always remember our first meeting with him. It was dynamite. And uh, I called my wife, Cherry, and I said, Honey, we're going to begin to win. That's all I said to her. Honey, we're going to begin to win. In his very first meeting, you could see how well prepared he was. And then how he approached what he was teaching at that session that day. Uh, you, could, you could sense an outstanding teacher and uh, builder that he was. And that's exactly what we were. He just brought us right up quickly. It's extraordinary. Eight years he spent at St. Cecilia doing just that. Eight years, David. That really mattered, didn't it? In a couple of ways. One is the the uh, that he was ready when he finally got his chance. He, you know, he'd already developed the skills that that were needed for for when he when he finally got his break. Secondly, in another way, all of that time, eight years at St. Cecilia's, and then and then several other assistant coaching jobs you know 20 years basically in the in the wilderness before he got his break all made it so that he had this enormous overriding will to succeed when he finally did get his chance west point is the next gig talk yeah. about this man red blake because we all need mentors in life and sometimes we're just lucky enough to stumble on one well blake was a superior football coach he had great organizational skills he also was a terrific teacher, and his motto was, you have to pay the price, which was sort of a, you know, a continuation of the Jesuit motto of freedom through discipline and the notion that you get out of life what you put into it. And it was part of the learning tree for, for Vince Lombardi. And, and what's interesting is this is back when West Point, and this is, again, hard to believe, was a national powerhouse in football, oh, championship teams. So. Yeah, they, when, when Lombardi got there, they'd come through a couple of amazing seasons where they were the number one team in the country. One of the other threads of my book, however, is the fallacy of the innocent past, where you know we're always longing for something golden in the past. And and tend to romanticize it for that reason. There are many valid reasons to do that, but you can't look look at it through rose-colored glasses. So, you know, during Lombardi's time at West Point, there was a cheating scandal among among the uh, football players. You know, human nature doesn't really change the the culture around it does, but but the temptations of life are, are there. You know, in every generation, and yep. so at West Point, it was you know, a cheating scandal that almost brought Red Blake to his knees. They had an amazing recovery, but it was a very difficult couple of years. And there's an honor code there, so in a place yeah. like West Point, it's even just, it's worse than big state university, a cheating scandal. Um, right. I mean, it, yes, it's it's sort of more uh, discombobulating that, that those young men would, would be involved in that. 
It wasn't the first time, and it wasn't the last time, though, that one of the academies had a scandal like that, and partly because of the pressures of the honor codes. You bet, and that they're young men in a very tough circumstance, and that nothing changes there. One scene in the book really stood out for me, David. It was of Lombardi taking game film from the West Point game (laughs) and bringing it to New York City for an important graduate who lived in the Waldorf Astoria. Who was that graduate? That was uh, General Douglas MacArthur who by that time was back from his controversial uh, period as a as a gen- army general, but still revered West Point. He'd once been the superintendent at West Point. He and Red Blake were very close. And so one of, of assistant coach Lombardi's assignments was to go down to um, New York and get the film developed and stop off at MacArthur's penthouse suite in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and show him the game films. Um, MacArthur was always following in great detail the starting lineups of the West Point of the Army football team, their schedule, um, their preseason drills. He wanted to know everything about every player on that team. And one of so Lombardi got to spend time with him, uh, showing him game film uh, during the seasons. That had to be a real learning uh, experience for him at a minimum. Lombardi yeah. and MacArthur, by the way, both believed. David, and the value of competitive sports to shape and mold men's character. Talk about that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, um, MacArthur was very much into the notion that, that you know, mind and body uh, went together and that sports were essential to, to building character. Um, you know, that, that that's a debatable point. Um, some people argue that sports don't make character but reveal it. And, uh, you know, I think it's always an interesting uh way to look at it, but but for MacArthur, sports was was really a central part of, of what he saw as the mission of West Point. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Moranis, the book When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, and I just can't get out of my head what that must have been like for a young coach Lombardi, an assistant coach, to bring game film to General Douglas MacArthur. I would have wet myself. I would have peed in my pants. When we come back, more of the life story of Vince Lombardi with one of the best writers in this country, author David Moranis. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're talking to David Moranis, author of When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And Vince's next job, he was the assistant coach for Wellington Mara's New York Giants. He's in the big leagues now, David. He was the offensive coach, and Tom Landry, who would go on to fame as a coach of the Dallas Cowboys, he was the assistant coach in charge of the defense. Talk about that. You could say that that was the best combination of of uh, assistant coaches in NFL history. So much so that the head coach, Jim Lee Howell, they used to joke that his only main assignment was to make sure the footballs had enough air in them. <laughs> and then he turned everything over to uh, Landry and Lombardi, who were um, yin and yang, uh, just opposites of personality and coaching styles. Um, L- Landry was cool, methodical, 
almost uh, almost an automaton in the way he wanted his players to to act and the way he coached. And Lombardi was um, much more emotional, uh, much more uh, uh, you know high high and low in terms of how he would deal with the players. Uh, just complete opposites. Indeed. And by the way, he had to learn something new. He had to adapt Lombardi. These were grown men. Guys like Charlie Connolly yeah. had served in war. Talk about how Lombardi adapted from teaching young people to teaching grown men. Well, you're right. Uh, you know, his first uh, training camp with the Giants, um, he, he did, the, the offensive players really didn't uh, take to him at first. Frank Gifford, uh, the great halfback, and Charlie Connerly, the old quarterback, they thought he was sort of amateurish and, you know, trying to sort of a rah-rah college guy. So it took him a while to adjust to the pro style. But that's a very important point about Lombardi, which many people don't quite understand. He has the reputation of sort of my way or the highway being inflexible. He wasn't like that at all, really. He was very disciplined and tough, but he was also a master psychologist who who would study his players and figure out how to get the best out of all of them and learn and change and adapt. And that's exactly what he started doing when he became an assistant coach at the Giants. And all teachers in the end have to do that because culture changes, people yep. change, and you just can't, you can't treat people as robots. They're people. That's exactly right. And that's why when people ask me whether Lombardi could succeed today, I say yes. Um, he he would he would learn how to get the best out of players today, just as he did in his era, and he would adapt to that without changing his fundamental philosophy. And the players would adapt to him because they realized that he had their interests at heart and that he would help them win. Indeed, let's talk about the professional football experience then, because it's not today. Baseball, boxing, even horse racing got more coverage in newspapers. Pay was poor. In your book, you talk about how players barely got paid for preseason games, and many teams had no compensation plans for injured players. But Lombardi was lucky to come into the league just as all of that was beginning to change, David, and it didn't hurt that he was in a big media market like New York. No, it didn't, and it didn't hurt that um, that the game had him as well. And it sort of was a nice uh, synergy between the rise of professional football and the rise of Vince Lombardi. So everything that he learned in New York by the time he got to Green Bay, football, the NFL was finally coming out from being a second-class sport to being the dominant sport that it would later become. And and the sport used Lombardi, and Lombardi used him in that rise. Indeed. And so he ends up in a little hamlet in the Midwest called Green Bay, and his poor wife. I mean, New York City, and it might as well have been Alaska that he was going to as far as his wife and family were concerned. We haven't talked much about this thing called the marriage. And the wife had drinking problems. Uh, Vince wasn't exactly a model husband in terms of how he talked to his wife, treated his wife, and he was never there. Talk about that relationship and what the wife did, because she really tried to keep Vince in New York. Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a difficult it's a love story, but a very difficult and human and problematic one. Marie was from New Jersey. She loved the East Coast. She liked uh, the clothing stores in in Manhattan and just the whole lifestyle there. And and for her to go to to Little Green Bay was just a utter culture shock. There was a Broadway play that was made out of my book and. 
the character that steals the show in the play is Marie Lombardi, played by the great actress Judith Light. The scene of them driving west for the first time and rounding Chicago and then running into a snowstorm. It, it was amazing to see Judith Light portray Marie in that scene where she sees nothing but white ahead of her and, and what that sort of represented to her. Vince Lombardi was much better at creating a sense of family out of his football team than he was out of his nuclear family. His wife had um, a paradoxical situation where she loved being Vince Lombardi's wife, and she grew to love football and and really understood him and the game by in the end quite well. And yet it was a very lonely experience because he, in a sense, was married to football as much as or more than her. And she did have a drinking problem, and um, there were several moments in their lives in Green Bay where things got pretty dicey. She was in the hospital once for for an overdose of uh, of drugs, you know, um, of pills. I'm sorry, not drugs. And uh, of course, the relationship with Vince Jr. was equally difficult. Imagine being carrying that name and that bird. There's a book in that, David, The Sons of Great Men. Maybe, maybe you'll. Uh, yeah, uh, I know. I, there really is. Yep. There's a great scene in your book where Lombardi, the new coach, gives his first impassioned speech to the Green Bay team <laughs> that had just lost 10 of 11 games. He told them they were going to be the New York Yankees of football. He told them that he would relentlessly pursue victory and anyone who didn't like it was free to leave. After the speech, and I'm quoting from your book, there was silence. The room empties. Lombardi approaches veteran Max McGee. What did you think? Lombardi asked. Well, I'll tell you, you got their attention, coach, McGee replied. You know, I wasn't sure, Lombardi confided. Everybody could have just gotten up and walked out for all I knew. It showed a tremendous vulnerability in Lombardi and an honesty. And I think that is what really came out of this book for me. What a human being he was. Oh, absolutely. You know, you can try to create uh, a myth- mythological creature as a saint, um, but it's the it's the frailty and humanity of someone who then goes on, despite all of that, to achieve uh, success that makes Lombardi the more interesting uh, character. And he did have those vulnerabilities and those uncertainties, and they drove him as much as, as his confidence that he was going to win. Indeed, and I love. There's a video. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's Lombardi on a on a in front of a chalkboard, and he's outlining the sweep. Oh yes, that's that's uh, iconic. Yeah, it's like a physics class. It's so intricate, and yet he mastered his team mastered this play, and it became well, it became the iconic play of the great American football team known as the Green Bay Packers. I love that the story of the sweep as much as anything to describe Vince Lombardi because, on superficially. Um, it seems simplistic, you know. The other teams would have all of these fancy plays, and 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 the Packers had the power sweep, the Green Bay sweep, and other teams knew it was coming. So why did it succeed? It's because Lombardi taught it so well and so thoroughly, and allowed freedom in the discipline of that sweep, so that every player involved in that sweep, whether they're a blocker or the runner, knew about. 10 or 20 variables that they could use on the sweep depending on how the defense was reacting. And they understood it so well that they were one step ahead of the defense on that play. And that was the freedom through discipline of of Lombardi's philosophy exemplified by one play that seemed simple but actually was rendered simple in its complexity. 
And when we come back, more with David Moranis, his terrific book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. This is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will get you our five best stories each week in audio form and in text. You can read it. You can listen to it. That's ouramericannetwork.org. More after these messages with David Moranis and the life of Vince Lombardi. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with author David Moranis and his book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, and we love to cover these stories. This book was written almost two decades ago, but we cover the great iconic stories in this country and the writers who wrote the books, and for those who hadn't read this book, well, go to Amazon.com. It's still out there, folks, and you won't put it down if you read it, and David Lombardi had no room in the locker room for racism or in the city of Green Bay. Does that have anything to do with how he was treated as an Italian? He'd been called WAP, Guinea, Dago, and so many other bad names. He knew the sting of racism and racial prejudice. You know, it did certainly affect Lombardi. That, that, that's not to say that that was the only factor, because I think there are other Italians who were discriminated against or anybody, you can react one of two ways. You can then find somebody else to discriminate against yourself, yep. or you can take it as a learning lesson about, you know, that we're all uh, in the same boat. Lombardi took it that way, um, in the best possible way. When he got to Green Bay, you know, I think there were three blacks in the whole town, and one was the shoeshine man at the Northland Hotel, and the other two were Packers. Uh, he brought the first wave of of great black athletes to Green Bay. And one of the first things he did was go to all the taverns in Green Bay, or most of them, because there's so many, and overwhelming, you know, there's a tavern on every block. Right. But he said, if I hear that you're discriminating against any of my players, you're off limits for all of them. And that had a pretty profound effect. And that was the sort of thing he did throughout his career. When they had preseason games in the South, uh, the first instance they were in New Orleans, and the black players had a sleep somewhere else, he said, we'll never allow this again. And he would put the whole team up together at a army base instead of having to deal with this, with the Jim Crow South. Um, he was very strong on race, and all of his black players from the day they first met him to the day he died uh, revered him for that. Yeah, and the military, we all know this about the military. Long before there was integration talk, the first real cultural institution in America that brought the races together was the military, David. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it was too late. It happened after World War II, basically. But but the military and sports, more than any other parts of American life, have become true meritocracies, at least on the playing field or on the, the field of battle. They did a lot, both of those institutions, to, to break the racial barriers of this country. 
Let's talk about prayer. You said it was, quote, the essence of Lombardi's religious practice and the constant of his daily routine. Quote, his daily prayers were an effort to balance the tension between his will to succeed and his desire to be good. You know, it's quite something that he saw that in himself. He might have the appearance of not being the most self-reflective human being. So obsessed did he seem with, with prevailing. But in fact, he did have that self-awareness, and it was the central part of his uh, faith, of his life of prayer, was to try to find the right balance. Even if he couldn't do it outside of the, the uh, church, he understood the problem that he was dealing with in his own frailty on that, and that was, that was what he spent a lot of... You know, he didn't pray to win, he prayed to be a better person. And in your chapter, Trinity... His son talked about his dad, and I'm going to quote from the son. Life was a struggle for my dad. He knew he wasn't perfect. He had a lot of habits that were far from perfect. His strengths were his weaknesses and vice versa. He fought it by taking that paradox to church. It went back to the Jesuits always and the struggle between the shadow self and the real self, your humanity and your divinity. He saw that struggle clear, my dad, in concrete terms. Wow, what a wise son, David. Isn't that something? I know. I felt blessed when I started this biography that Vince Lombardi's son was not perpetuating a mythological, sainted creature as a father, but had a clear-eyed vision of him. And it wasn't, he didn't hate his father, he loved his father, but he knew his father's flaws. And he had suffered because of that himself and spent a lot of time thinking about it so that by the time I approached this book, Vince Jr. was very open to letting an author sort of see the reality and the complexity and the paradox of, of his old man. And what father and son doesn't have this complicated relationship? And the honesty of this, the brutal honesty of it, was yeah. absolutely beautiful. Oh, I agree. I mean, every, every father-son, mother-daughter relationship has some complexity to it of one degree or another. This one was a little more complex because of the father's fame and his obsession and the son's inability to break through until, until you know, it's almost too late. But that level of comprehension of, of Vince Jr., of what his father was dealing with, is quite extraordinary. Lombardi would go on to win a world championship by beating his old team, the New York Giants, and he didn't just beat the Giants, David. He destroyed them. When the score was 37 to nothing, he finally started playing his subs, and Lombardi called that title game the biggest thrill of his life. Well, you know, he probably thought that he was going to be the coach of the New York Giants. That was, you know, he was a New York kid. That was, he liked, uh, he and Wellington Mara both went to Fordham in the same era. There are a lot of connections there. He, he didn't get the job, and then by the time he was, might have gotten it. He didn't want to leave again. So, beating the beating the New York Giants, I would say that first thirty-seven to nothing game was probably the the most important of his career, along with the last, along with the ice bowl at the end. Yep, there was this great celebration at the Elks Club in town, <laughs> and everyone was there after this victory. Players too. You wrote this about Lombardi and the men he coached. Quote: As despotic and unfeeling as he could sometimes seem on the practice field. The coach had taught them how to win. He lifted their self-image. He challenged them to accomplish things that they had thought were beyond their reach. I want to play you a clip. 
It's of Jerry Kramer talking about Coach. Oh, great. And, and, and this is a guy talking possibly, David, 20 to 30 years after this incident. Let's take a listen to Jerry Kramer. I jumped off sides one time in a scrimmage, and he got in my face, and he said, Mr. The concentration period of a college student is five minutes, high school is three minutes, kindergarten is 30 seconds. You don't even have that, so where's that put you? Put me checking my shoe shine. I go up in the locker room, sitting there, chin in my hand, elbow me, looking at the floor, thinking, I'm never going to play for this guy. He came in the door, came across the room, slapped me on the back of the neck, messed up my hair. He said, son, one of these days you're going to be the best guard in football. He turned around and walked away. And that started my motor. With that comment, he allowed me to think about being a great football player. And from that point on, I worked my tail off. I gave him everything I had. It made a profound impact on my life. And just listen to the emotion in that. That started my motor. It had a profound impact on my life. Don't we all wish we had somebody in our life like a Coach Lombardi who would push us beyond what we thought we could do? That that, uh, is incredibly uh, emotional for me because my father did the same thing to me at one point where I had no clue what I was doing in my life. I was 15 years old, and he introduced me to someone and said, this is my younger son, Dave. He's going to be the best writer of all of us. Um, you know, and so I know that what that what it means to have that motor turned on like that, and the key to Lombardi, which many coaches who think they're mini Lombardis don't understand, is that you have to have that balance. Yes, you can be tough, but you have to have the ability to know when to when to show the love to your to your players, and that you really you know it's it's about them. Um, and their ability to work together. Um, and Lombardi had that. There's some Lombardi wannabes who just see the tough part of it and don't see the love part of it. Yeah, they don't see the softness either or the vulnerability, and that's right. that's a considerable uh, loss for them. Final parting thoughts here. Once that Giants game wins, in my mind, the Super Bowls were afterthoughts. They were going to happen. He had achieved all he'd achieved. What if it, Was there something after it was all done that you, you thought, I should have put that in the book? I missed it. Boy, that's a great question. I missed a couple of stories that I wished I'd gotten. One was about Lionel Aldridge, um, the defensive end, an African-American who was in love with and married a white woman, and there was a lot of pressure um, to prevent that from happening, believe it or not, in that era. You know, we still had that level of of racial bias, and Lombardi stood up for Aldridge and said, you know, we're human beings first, and don't feel any pressure from me about that. Seems obvious now, but I wish I'd had that story in my book, because it was one more level of Lombardi. I do have in the book the fact that um, his brother Harold was gay, and Lombardi was terrific on, on that issue, which still is not something that professional athletes can deal with in a particularly healthy way, even today, but Lombardi made it clear on all of his teams that if he found anybody discriminating against someone because of their sexual orientation, they were off the team. And as a Catholic, that had to be something. I mean, he was yep. actually practicing perfect Catholicism. He was loving on the gay player. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was practicing. I, I love the way you put that. 
um, because there's so many different ways that people distort uh, uh, religion and, and Catholicism, and 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 he was uh, applying the, the 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 fundamental love of 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 what faith should be. And David, you did such a good job weaving in the Catholic nature of Vince Lombardi and the Catholicism that informed his entire life. And we've been talking to David Moranis, the book When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. Go to Amazon.com and order it. It was written 20 years ago, but it's still one heck of a read. Vince Lombardi's story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we're going to dig in and tell the story of an American entrepreneur, an internet impresario and personality, and his name is Gary Vaynerchuk, known as Gary V, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru. First known as a leading wine critic who grew his family's wine business from three to $60 million. He's also an angel investor and advisor to Uber, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, among others. He's a regular keynote speaker at global entrepreneurship and technology conferences, and we just think the guy's story is fascinating and his advice really compelling. Like many great American story, Gary V's story starts with an immigrant family coming to the United States to pursue the American dream. I was born in, uh, in Belarus, in the former Soviet Union, and my family immigrated here when I was three years old. It was very, very difficult. We were extremely poor. As a matter of fact, <laughs> this stage is dramatically bigger than the studio apartment that me and my grandparents, parents, and great-grandparents lived in. It was difficult, mainly because great-grandma was kind of crazy, uh, um, but also because we had no cash, we didn't speak the language. Grandma got mugged a weekend, and Queens, New York was not the paved streets of gold that my Russian parents thought it was going to be. It was the late 70s, it was the Carter years. My dad was a construction worker in Russia. That's what he thought he was gonna do in the US, but clearly that wasn't gonna happen. The great uncle that was gonna kinda take care of us, my dad's great uncle, while we were in Italy getting our visas changed, because I don't know if you remember, but Russia and America weren't best friends back then. So it took a while to get here. They wanted to make sure I wasn't a spy. Um, He died, so that didn't work out um, for anybody. Um, And we came to the US and it was a struggle. This great uncle of my dad's was very well off and he owned a small liquor store in New Jersey. So that's pretty much what my dad did. He commuted from Queens, New York to Clark, New Jersey. I still make fun of him because I'm convinced that he spent more on gas than he was getting paid. And he started our lives for us. And between my dad's hard work, and I didn't know my dad until I was 14, and we'll get to that in a minute, and the fact that my mom, how do I put this smartly, is the greatest human being of all time, and instilled so much, thank you, and instilled so much self-confidence in me that it should probably be illegal, 
and is clearly the foundation of everything I'm going to achieve in my life, um, we start our lives. He started making money at a very young age, but his father had different plans for young Gary V. I had seven lemonade stands when I was six years old. So I had a lemonade stand franchise. How many, how many people here remember the big wheels? You remember, got it? Yeah, those were awesome. I used to drive my big wheels around Edison, New Jersey to pick up my cash like I was Tony Soprano. It's crazy. I learned a lot of business lessons there. This one kid, Eric Conrad, his parents were divorced. I didn't understand, I was so little. I didn't understand why he would be in our neighborhood in the summer but not in the winter. He would come every summer. He was a baller. He would make his own signs. He was a hustler. I'm sure he's doing well now. And I learned my first lesson. He would, you know, I would give them all 50 cups. Cups or a quarter, it was easy math. He would steal cash. He would take some. But he sold so much more than everybody else that I never got rid of him. And so it's very funny what you can learn and I've used that concept you know, still to this day. So it's funny what you can learn and where I really started learning business was when I was 12 years old because when I was 12 years old, I started a massive baseball card business and I was selling $1,000 to $2,000 a weekend in the malls of New Jersey and that was tremendous. You know, I had like $10,000 cash under my bed when I was 12 and let me tell you something. When you're 12 and you have 10 G's of cash under your bed and you're not selling weed, you're doing a good job. (laughs) Very good job. So I was happy about that. That was awesome. And then I turned 14 and my dad ruined my life. He walked in, he said, you're going to work today. I said, what? I have a baseball card show. He said, no you don't. You don't mess with Russian immigrant dads. I decided I should probably go if I wanted to continue growing. Um, So... We, we, we went to the liquor store, I cried the whole drive home to the store, cried, real cry. 14, I'm, not, I'm proud, I cry, cry, devastated. Dad, how much are you gonna pay me? Two bucks an hour. I started crying much harder. <laughs> and I proceeded to spend 10 hours in a basement bagging ice and made 20 bucks for the day. Instead of going to the mall, hanging out with friends and girls and selling baseball cards. Clearly my life had taken a bad turn. And this is what I did for the next two years. It was devastating, I hated it, and my life from 14 to 16 professionally was dark. Gary's father had finally let him out of the basement when he realized a golden opportunity that would change his life forever. About 25 people came in and asked for the same thing. Camus Special Select 1990 Cabernet Sauvignon. It was the Wine Spectator Wine of the Year. And finally, you know, people coming in, we had sold out of it the prior week because it just got announced. And finally, you know, people coming in, do you have it? No, and they're leaving and you know, the entrepreneurial DNA is like going off. I'm like, this sucks. This is not good business. I don't like this. We have like six parking spots and they're all taken up by people that can't buy something. I'm like, I'm gonna take a back order. We didn't have a back order system, but I didn't care because I was going to school on Monday. <laughs> so, guy, next guy that comes in, I'm getting a back order. Guy comes in. Sir, what's your name? You know, da-da-da, got his name, address, phone number. How much would you like? I'll take 10 cases. So I'm like, man, this guy's an alcoholic. <laughs> I was like, are you gonna drink all that? Are you having a party? He goes, no, 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 I collect wine. That was it. At that moment, I can, I, you know how you can, you know how like when big things happen, you can, I can literally, I remember the weird t-shirt I was wearing. I was sitting 
In the middle of the store, my life changed because I sat there and said, because at this point, I wanted to help my family business. As any good punk entrepreneur kid, you think everything your dad is doing is wrong, right? And I see all these things that I can fix, but I wasn't interested in the subject matter, right? I was already thinking about what was I gonna do when I converted this whole thing into a baseball card store, right? I started learning about wine. No 16-year-old should know as much about the Loire Valley in France as I did. I was so ridiculously confident and I so knew what was gonna happen that I realized that high school was the last vacation I was ever gonna have. And you're listening to Gary Vee, his story in his own words, serial entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, a guru on all things web and digital. More on his story, more from him, Gary Vee's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. Gary V's story continues here. Again, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru and personality. He was not your average student, Gary V, and he struggled with school as he tried to grow his father's wine business. Somewhere around fifth grade, I realized I did not give a crap about Saturn. Algebra wasn't gonna do it for me. And so what I did was I deployed and honed my skills at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So by the time I fell in love with the notion of what that was gonna be, that was already ingrained in me. I thought I was gonna open up 8,000 wine and liquor stores, the Toys R Us of wine, sell the franchise, buy the New York Jets. Here's where the story starts getting relevant to you. I go to college. I'm playing Madden 95 in my dorm room. Dominating, by the way. My friend runs in and he says, you have to come and see this. I finish my game, I walk into a room and there are eight 18-year-old dudes hanging around a computer. Now, for a lot of the youngsters in this room, you don't recall this, I was 18 years old at this point and probably spent less than three hours on a computer in my life. By being a DNF student and getting an F in computer class, I was able to stay off the computer, right? I get on there. In eight minutes, somehow, I end up on a message bulletin board in AOL that's selling and buying baseball cards. In 14 minutes, I make a transaction. Within 20 minutes of ever being on the internet, I said, my God, I don't need to open up 8,000 stores. I'm gonna do something on this. 18 months later, I launched one of the first three e-commerce wine businesses in America called winelibrary.com. Don't clap. Here's why. The first 18 months that that site ran, that site cost $15,000 to build. We were a small family business. $15,000 to build that website. In the first 18 months, because I was still at school, I wasn't fully back at the liquor store. In the first 18 months on that $15,000 investment in 1996, seven, eight internet world, where most people still weren't on it, that $15,000 investment brought back $480 in sales. 
I don't know how many of you have a Soviet father, <laughs> but Sasha Vaynerchuk was not happy with the ROI. This, this failure taught Gary a very important lesson about success. It was one of the more important lessons I've learned in business. The disproportional reason so many people in here will not win. Let's just get right to the chase. It's your lack of patience. For some unknown reason, when people go into ventures like this and other things, they somehow miraculously think it's gonna happen in five minutes. That you're the one person in the world, whatever you guys call your big club and put posters of each other up on, you think you're gonna be in that circle in five minutes for some reason, because you're the most charismatic, you figured out some weird system, you've got it. And the lack of patience is what hurts so many people. And so, by losing so much money in those first 18 months, I had walking into a system that I had to be patient, I had to build, I had to work. From 22 to 30 years old, for eight years, in my 20s, I worked 15 hours a day, seven days a week, in my dad's liquor store. Today, with all the things that have happened to me, I get emails on Facebook from friends I went to high school with, often starting with, Gary, you're so lucky. I reply to every single one of them, all of them, with the reply of an opening line first, Jan, great to see you again. You look great, kid's super cute. P.S. I am super not lucky. Let me remind you, Rick, remember when we graduated college and you went to the Jersey Shore every weekend and hooked up with chicks and drank beer? I worked. Rick. In those 15, 18 hours a day out of school, I grew my dad's business from a three to a $60 million business, which meant I was 27 years old running a $60 million business, and I was paying myself $54,000 a year. You know why? Because I'm patient. Because I don't need a cool watch. I don't need a fat whip. I want to build something. I want to build something. From there, Gary continued to build by using new online tools to deliver content. There was something called Google. I looked at it, I saw this new ad product where if you searched for a wine, you could buy the first result? That was insane to me. I thought that was incredible. And so I bought the word wine and many other words like Cabernet and Pinot Noir the day Google AdWords started. Uh, How many people here have done Google AdWords in their career? Very nice. I owned the word wine the day Google AdWords started for five cents a click for nine months before anybody bid me up. And that worked. And I kept going and then my career took a massive change that I think will really impact a lot of people in this room if you follow this blueprint. There was a new website out that I was intrigued by. It was called YouTube. Everybody in the world was really not ready for online video, it hadn't happened yet. I've been wanting to like play in that space. I finally saw this site, YouTube, it was a couple months old. There was not a single video on YouTube that had a million views yet, period, on the whole platform. So seven months after YouTube came out, I started Wine Library TV, which was the first time I was doing content, not advertising. And the premise of the show was very simple. I sat at my desk with four bottles of wine 
and I had somebody videotape me drinking it for 20 straight minutes. <laughs> it was a great gig. And somehow a year later, hundreds of thousands of people watched me taste wine and give my thoughts. And what I did was I understood the wine business at that point. I understood my craft at that point. How many people here have a friend or relative that is fairly into wine? Raise your hands. So you guys know exactly what I know, which is the second somebody gets just a little bit of wine knowledge, you're drinking the wrong year. Shut up. So what I did was by knowing that, I talked to people about wine instead of down to them. I talked about wine the way it actually smelled and tasted to me instead of the words on the back of the label. I called wines, you know, this reminds me of what a racquetball smells like when you first open the container. (laughs) Or if I ate an entire pack of Big League Chew and swallowed it, this is what this tastes like. Or when it didn't go as well, if you were at a farm and a sheep farted in your face, this is what (laughs) this wine tastes like. Gary Vee then goes on to talk about the importance of what we call social media regarding attention, sales, and connecting with people. Everybody was talking about this app called Twitter. Everybody thought it was the stupidest thing of all time because who cares if you're walking the dog or eating pizza? I thought it was the future of email. I invested in Twitter. I made a video about it. Facebook saw it. I spoke at Facebook. I became friends with Zucks, I invested in Facebook, and then I saw a bunch of high school kids playing on Tumblr, and I invested in Tumblr. I'm rich. (laughs) I run a company right now called VaynerMedia. We're a $100 million a year strategy and creative and media agency. We have Under Armour and Toyota and Dove and Budweiser and the biggest brands in the world paying us to sell stuff on the internet. Let's start with a couple things that you need to know. Social media. It doesn't exist, it's a slang term. Social media is the slang term for the current state of the internet. If you are sitting in this crowd and still not devoted to these platforms, you will lose because the only thing that people care about in marketing and sales that are smart and successful is attention. And if you don't realize that everybody's attention is now in their phone, you are not paying attention to society. How many people in this room, in this arena, (laughs) how many people in this arena are always within arm's reach of their cell phone in every 24 hour window? Over 50% of everybody's time in the world on a phone is spent on a social network. This is where we live. And for you to sit in this audience and disrespect Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, all these platforms is an insane thing. When I had 50,000 followers on Twitter, I could get more people to do something than I can today at 1.3 million followers on Twitter. It's why when you roll up at me and go, I have this many followers, I don't give a crap. It doesn't matter how many followers you have, it matters how many followers you have that care. You're not paying the bills with 100,000 Instagram followers that you bought on eBay, jerk. Yep, that's exactly right. You're listening to Gary V. His story, by the way, and his advice. If you're in marketing or anything like it or advertising, that last piece is for you. Gary V's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we love telling the stories of how businesses get started and grow. The cosmetic industry in particular is worth $62 billion a year in the U.S. alone. The woman who started it all became the first female millionaire. Her name is Madam C.J. Walker. Alelia Bundles, the author of the book On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, is her great-great-granddaughter. Today, we are going to listen to her tell her great-great-grandmother's story. Madam C.J. Walker, the entrepreneur, philanthropist, and political activist, was born Sarah Breedlove in 1867 in Delta, Louisiana, on the same Mississippi River plantation where her parents had been slaves before the Civil War. She began working in the cotton fields with her parents as a little girl, and by the time she was seven, both of her parents had died. Her mother died first, her father remarried briefly, and then he died. By the time she was uh, 14, she said, I married to get a home of my own to escape my cruel brother-in-law. When she was 17, she had her first daughter, her only child, whose name was Lelia. And this is the Lelia who later became a Lelia Walker. At 20, Sarah Breedlove McWilliams' husband, Moses, died. We don't really know how he died. You'll sometimes see stories that he was killed in a race riot or that he was lynched. That's not true. There's no documentation to support that. But he died, leaving her a widow at only 20 years old. She knew she wasn't going to move back in with her sister and her brother-in-law. And fortunately for her, she had three brothers. Three of her four brothers were living in St. Louis, just up the Mississippi River. And she moved up there. But They were barbers. And while she had no formal education and no particular skills, her brothers had a little bit more status in the black community in St. Louis. And that was very helpful to her, but she still had to struggle and eke out her own way. And the work that she got was as a washerwoman. For the next 18 years, she worked as a washerwoman, sometimes for as little as $1.50 a day, struggling to take care of her daughter, struggling to educate her daughter. And at some time during the 1890s, her hair began to fall out. Now, this was very common. We don't think about this now. Many people associate Madam Walker with hair straightening and with the hot comb. Many people think she invented the hot comb. But I have to tell you, she did not invent the hot comb. That was not her main objective. She was worried about going bald. And when we go back a, a century ago, things were very different. Hygiene was very different. Most people did not have running water in their homes, did not have electricity, did not have central heating. Ninety percent of African Americans lived in the South, most of them in the rural South, before 1900. So you can imagine people did not have all of these amenities that we have now. As a result, women only wash their hair once a month. There were old wives' tales that said, only wash your hair months, once a month. Some people didn't wash their hair at all during the winter. Now, there was some logic to that. People thought they might catch cold, they might get pneumonia. But the result of it was there was horrible rampant scalp disease. And so I just want, especially for the young people, to say to you, if you've ever had dandruff, just multiply that about 10,000 times. And then you will have some idea of what this scalp disease was like. It caused people's hair to fall out. The dandruff was so bad, the sores that resulted. And Sarah Breedlove McWilliams was one of those women who suffered from what was called tetter and psoriasis. When her hair began to fall out, she was very ashamed. Uh, she thought she looked ugly, and she said, I prayed to God 
to give me a solution, to come up with an idea, something to help me grow my hair. And she said, and then for three nights in a row, I had a dream. A big African man came to me and told me what to mix up for my hair, what to mix up for my formula. And then my ha- I put it on my hair, my hair began to grow back. Other people asked me what I was doing. I had no intentions of going into business, but there was so much demand that I began to sell the products door to door. Now that miracle formula was not really a miracle. It was a system of washing her hair more often, of applying an ointment that included sulfur, which was a centuries-old cure for skin disease and scalp disease, so that once the scalp was healthy, the hair could grow back. And she would use her pictures before she used her product and after she used her product to convince women what they could do for themselves. Many people believed that she was a millionaire and she certainly lived like one. Now clearly for someone to have come from the cotton fields of the South, from a slave shack, a sharecropper shack, to move into a mansion that she had built herself that had been designed by a black architect, that clearly took a special kind of genius and determination. By 1910, Madam Walker founded her company in 1906 and by 1910, She had built a factory in Indianapolis. That's where she decided to headquarter her company. And as soon as she moved to that city, she had become very aware of the effect that she had, that the money that she made could influence people, could help make change. And so she realized that there was a campaign going on to build a black YMCA in Indianapolis. And she stepped up to the plate and donated $1,000 to the building fund of the Black YMCA. That would be like $25,000 today. And she was in newspapers all over the country. The black newspapers put her in the headlines. There were a lot of nationally distributed black newspapers. She probably appeared in the Michigan Chronicle, which was published here in Detroit. But people were amazed because this was the largest gift that a black woman had ever given to the YMCA. And so now she was becoming not only successful in business, but famous. And that gift, when the, when the building finally went up, people celebrated her. Now, she was a woman with a lot of pride and a woman, humble, but a woman who realized that she was becoming known. And so she was getting a lot of confidence. And that confidence propelled her to attend the 1912 National Negro Business League Conference in Chicago. The National Negro Business League was founded by Booker T. Washington, also the founder of Tuskegee Institute. At that time in 1912, he was the most powerful black man in America. Madam Walker did not agree with him on all of his political stances, but she admired him and she respected him and she wanted his recognition and his endorsement. But Booker T. Washington really was not giving Madam Walker much respect in 1912. She had written letters to him asking for his support and he had written very polite but rather dismissive letters back to her. She had even visited his campus in Tuskegee and persuaded him to let her speak during chapel but still he was keeping her at arm's length. And so when she arrived at the conference in Chicago in July of 1912, she sent word to him through one of his assistants that she wanted to be included on the program, that she wanted to share her success story, her rags to riches story with the other delegates to the convention. Booker T. Washington apparently ignored her request. And so on the second day of the conference, 
One of her good friends, George Knox, the very esteemed publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, a nationally distributed black newspaper, and also a friend of Booker T. Washington's. George Knox stood up in the audience and said, we should hear from Madam C.J. Walker. She is the woman who contributed $1,000 to the building fund of the black YMCA. Booker T. Washington, who knew and respected George Knox, ignored his request. And so, on the third and final day of the conference, when Madam Walker realized that she wasn't going to be given the opportunity to speak, she realized she would have to seize the opportunity. And so, as the final banker was making his remarks, Madam C.J. Walker stood at her seat, looked toward Booker T. Washington at the podium and said, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself. I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I have built my own factory on my own ground. The next year, Booker T. Washington invited her back as a keynote speaker. You're listening to the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. Her story continues after these few messages. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We return to the story of Madam C.J. Walker. We last heard how she started her business and how she earned the respect of people in her business. But now we're about to hear how her continued success and public influence shaped the lives of people around her. Her biggest seller was Madam C.J. Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. This is the ointment that was made from an ingredient called petrolatum and sulfur. A little bit like Sulphur Aid or Bronner Brothers B&B Grow, the kinds of products we still see on the market. She masked the smell of sulfur with a violet perfume, and she also included coconut oil. Madam Walker traveled all over the country training agents. By the time she died in 1919, there were 20,000 Walker agents who either had attended the various schools that she had established throughout the country or who had taken her class as she traveled from St. Louis to New York to Atlanta to Oakland, anywhere where there might be black women who could benefit from her products. It was very special to complete the Madam Walker course, and she awarded diplomas from what she called the Lelia College. The first Lelia College, named after her daughter, was established in Pittsburgh in 1908. Madam Walker even traveled to the Caribbean in 1913, she visited Costa Rica, Cuba, Nicaragua, Jamaica, Haiti, and Panama because she knew there were a lot of people in the African diaspora, women who would benefit from the use of her products. She was smart enough to set up a system of beauty culture to organize her agents into clubs around the country. And she said people would often ask her, what was the secret to her success? And she said, there is no royal flower-strewn path to success. 
What success I have obtained has been the result of many sleepless nights and much hard work. I got my start by giving myself a start. In 1910, when Madam Walker moved to Indianapolis, she bought this house after being there just for a few months, and it was the fanciest house in the black neighborhood in Indianapolis. Shortly after her move, she built a factory in the back of the house, and there women came to learn the Walker method. They came to be pampered, to get manicures, to get hair treatments. And this was at a time when nobody was telling black women that they were beautiful, and she was saying, you deserve to feel good about yourselves. She surrounded herself with the smartest, the best, and the brightest. She herself, of course, had very little formal education, but she hired a woman named uh, Alice Kelly, who had been a school teacher at a private black school to become not only the forelady of her factory to manage other women who were working there, but to be her personal private tutor, so that she was constantly teaching herself new things. Her secretary, Violet Reynolds, who I grew up from down the street from, was one of my neighbors, I often talked to about Madam Walker, and she would tell a story. She said, when Madam, Madam traveled a lot, but whenever she was in the office in Indianapolis and she would come down to read her newspaper, everyone would sit around, the secretaries would sit around, and if they came across a word that she didn't understand or that they didn't understand, they pulled out the dictionary so that she was learning a new word every day. She was learning something new every day. She became a student of history, a student of politics. She wanted to absorb everything possible. And this woman who had had little formal education eventually became a person interested in global affairs, interested in the anti-lynching movement, in the politics of her day. When she traveled from town to town, sometimes she would be in the rural south and they would be going through a town on a train that was too small for the train to even stop. And her secretary told me that she would take stacks of her brochures and throw them out to the people who were waiting along the train line. She was getting that message out, and then people would write to her, sometimes scrawled in, in paper, in a pencil, on paper bags, ordering her products and sending their 50 cents for her products. Madam Walker's advertisements were all over the country, getting people to buy her products. Eventually, by the time she died, she had 10 products, in addition to her vegetable shampoo and Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower. There was Glossine and Tetter Salve and Temple Salve and then a line of powders and a line of cold creams. Madam Walker's success really in part was based on her desire to make life better for her daughter. I once asked her secretary, Violet Reynolds, what their relationship was like and she said, fire and ice. They loved each other dearly and they sometimes fought fiercely. But that's like a lot of relationships, isn't it? Very normal relationship. And Madam put, poured her heart and soul into making life good for her daughter. She educated her daughter and she spoiled her a little bit. But Alelia was very helpful to her in the early days of the business. And she worked alongside her mother. And it was her idea to move to New York in 1913 and to establish a foothold in Harlem, where the, was, which was becoming the mecca of African-American political and cultural thought. So Lilia made really important contributions to the company, and yes, sometimes they didn't get along with each other, but, but they loved each other, and Madam was sometimes disappointed because Lilia didn't live up to her expectations, and Lilia was sometimes annoyed because Madam got on her nerves. But, uh, but in the end, um, there was a lot of love between the two women. In 1913, Lilia Walker convinced her mother to build a new house and a beauty parlor in Harlem. Harlem was just burgeoning at that point. And just like Detroit was a city where 
During World War I and during the teens, African Americans were moving from the South and populating the city. Harlem was, was burgeoning with, with West Indians and Southerners who were moving to the city. And it, they were riding a wave of African Americans becoming more urbanized and more sophisticated. And Alelia Walker could see that vision and persuaded her mother that she needed to have a beachhead in Harlem. And they built this beautiful townhouse, double townhouse on 136th Street in Harlem. It was designed by Vertner Tandy, who was one of the first licensed black architects in New York State. Downstairs was the Walker parlor, and upstairs for, on three floors were the living quarters for the Walker women. Every six weeks, they trained another class of 20 women in New York. Madam Walker was very smart about organizing the women who she had trained as sales agents. She taught them to become parts of clubs and to organize their financial matters. So that in 1916, she got the idea to organize them into clubs around the country and then to have a national convention. In 1917, around the time that Mary Kay was born, Madam Walker was having her first convention of the Walker sales agents. They're meeting here in Philadelphia at a church. And she was giving prizes to women, just as Mary Kay does now, but she was giving prizes in 1917 for the person who had brought in the most new sales agents, for the person who had sold the most products, but also for the person or the club who had contributed the most to charity or who had been involved in civic activities. She said, I want my agents to understand that their first duty is to humanity. And it's very interesting to know that the hairdressers were probably making more money than almost any other black woman who was working. Clearly people who were sharecroppers or domestics or maids were not making very much money, but school teachers and nurses were not making as much money as Walker agents. So they were powerful forces in their communities. In 1918, Madam Walker moved into her new mansion, Villa Lawaro. It, too, just as her house on 136th Street, was designed by Vertner Tandy. And this home was in Irvington on Hudson, New York, in Westchester County. It was in the richest area of any community in America, not far from the home of John D. Rockefeller and the home of Jay Gould. And Madam Walker clearly turned heads when she began to build her house on this property. First, people thought she was somebody's maid coming to inspect the property. Well, clear, soon they learned that this was Madam C.J. Walker, the businesswoman, the entrepreneur, the philanthropist, the political activist, who was moving among their midst. In um, 1919, early 1919, Madam Walker had begun to experience a lot of problems with high blood pressure. She had not had the best of health for a long time, and her doctors cautioned her and urged her to stay home and not to travel as much, but she was driven. She had such a mission in trying to make look the world better for other people, especially for African-American women, promoting economic independence. And in April of 1912, she traveled to St. Louis, where she had begun her business to introduce five new products. And while there, hoping to go to church uh, on Easter Sunday at her old church, she became very ill. She was taken back to uh, Irvington, New York on a private train car filled with flowers and then taken to her home in Villa, in, at Villa Lawaro in late April. 
On May 25, 1919, she slipped into a coma and died. At that point, there were headlines in newspapers all over the country. Madam C.J. Walker, millionaire. Stories about all of the people whose lives she had touched. Stories that would continue her legacy so that today I think she still inspires people. Madam Walker was a visionary, an innovative entrepreneur, a precedent-setting philanthropist. She preached economic independence for women before they had the right to vote. I got myself a start by giving myself a start, she often told her audiences. I had to make my own living and my own opportunity, but I made it. That is why I want to say to everyone present, don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. You have to get up and make them for yourselves. And what a story. You've been listening to Alelia Bundles, the great, great granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. We love these family stories, by the way. If you have any of yours, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Tell them to us. We'll tell them back to the rest of the country. I got myself a start by giving myself a start. What a line, one we can all use. Many a sleepless night, lots of travel, much risk-taking this woman took. Before Mary Kay, there was Madam C.J. Walker. Her story, her family's story, America's story, here on Our American Stories. Mm -hmm.